We're going to finish our series called Distracted this morning, talking about the Essenes. Now, interesting fun fact about the Essenes, they're not actually mentioned in Scripture. They're not found. There's no verses about the Essenes. um, But we do know historically from writers like Josephus and several other first century Jewish uh, authors and historians that the Essenes were a fairly large group of of individuals and... um, I'm, I've, right now, I've got this super amazing opportunity to be going back to school to get my um, Master's of Divinity, and so I'm in the process of doing that, and, and I'm doing it through the, our denomination, the FEC, and so I've, I've been able to go to three different seminaries, actually, during my time and taking online classes, and so I knew this series was coming up, and so I sent an email to all of my professors I've had so far, and I said, out of the, these four groups— these four groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes, which one is probably most represented in the American church today? And all three of the professors I've had so far, all of them said the Essenes, that they said the Essenes are where you'll probably find more people that connect to their thought process and their ideology, Um, because the Essenes were a Jewish group that wanted to separate from society. And if any of you have hopped online or watched the news or opened a newspaper or talked to anyone, I totally get this right now. I totally understand the idea of like, this world is crazy, okay? Everybody's angry, everybody's mad, can't nobody get along. And so let's just, we're just gonna work, we're all just gonna take ourselves and we're just gonna separate out. It makes total sense. It makes total sense, and that's what the Essenes did. They were the ones who said, in their day, Roman culture or Greek culture was just too much. It was just too much. It was too secular. It was too humanistic. It was too whatever. And so they decided to separate completely from the culture. And they set up a uh, group of communities. And there were lots of communities spread throughout uh, Israel, and, but the main one was in a place called Qumran. And if you can see it up on the big screens, and just so you're here, for you guys online, we've got this TV here. For everyone who's here live, we've got the big screen still. So if you're wondering, why is there a new TV on stage? It doesn't make any sense. For you guys, it's for up here. But online, there's a perfect shot right there. So um, Qumran is found here, circled in yellow. And it is on the edge of the Dead, sea, the Dead Sea, which when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they were found in the city of Qumran, in caves there, and all of that copying had been done by the Essenes. So I'm not here to say that the Essenes were completely bad by any means, or that they did many things wrong, but the biggest thing that they wanted to do was to gain full knowledge and full understanding of all of Scripture. And that sounds amazing, and they did a really good job of that. They thought that they could, if they memorized and copied down the law and the prophets, that they would have a more robust understanding of God, which was great, which is great to have. But the struggle is there's one thing to have a robust understanding of God surrounded by other people who have a robust understanding of God. We become an echo chamber. We become an echo chamber of having deep theological discussions that don't really amount to anything because we all already believe. And that's what the Essenes did. Um, Again, they thought memorization, discussion, and complete separation from the world would bring them greater knowledge and understanding. 
Which, if I'm going to be honest, there's a lot of times the idea of just separating from the world, creating our own Christian community, surrounded by people who think like, act like, and believe like I do, and just sit around and study scripture all day, man, there's not many things that sound better than that sometimes. There's a lot of times that that sounds so amazing to me to just be able to do that. But if you open up your Bibles to John chapter 17, we're going to see that that was never Jesus' intent for his disciples. That was never his intention for any of his followers. We're going to look at John 17, and we're going to look at a few other um, sections of verses this morning. And while you're turning there, I am going to pray for myself and for us as we dive deeper into Scripture. So join me. Father God, thank you again so much for this morning. Thank you that you that you have given us a chance for many weeks to meet together even though we couldn't be physically present. I thank you so much for that. I thank you so much for um, the internet and technology and everything online so that we can even still this morning connect with people who are not here. Whether they're not here because of the virus or they're not here because they're on vacation or they're not here because they live far, far away, God. Thank you so much for everyone that's sitting in this space and for everyone that's watching this space right now. God, your kingdom is huge and, and you want it to keep advancing and I think that's what you would have us do in this season is to continue to look outside of our walls, continue to look outside of ourselves to see what you are doing in the world. And God, this morning I pray for each one of us, myself first and foremost, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are ready to be molded and feet that are ready to be moved into action. God, there's a world that is dying and a world that is struggling out there, and we've got the antidote. We've got the prescription for their flu. We've got the prescription for what's going on in the world. But God, sometimes we're not, I'm not, many times I'm not great at, uh, at delivering the medicine. And so this morning, help us to gain understanding of how you would have us do that. And God, as always, anything that I say that's for me and my imagination, let it be forgotten before anyone leaves this space or logs off of our video, and God, everything that's from you, let it stick forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. John chapter 17, we're going to be looking at a few verses here. We'll read through it. It'll be on your screen, and then we'll stop every now and then to discuss different parts. It starts, Jesus, this is a prayer that Jesus is praying. It's the priestly prayer in John 17. He is praying this for his disciples, for the 12, even though one is going to deny him. He is praying for all of them. He says, I have given them your, wor your word, and the world has hated them because of it. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And that's an interesting place to start, because we have to be different from the world. My message this morning is not that you should go and be in the world and do everything that they're doing. That's not my message at all. We have to be distinctly different. We have to be distinctly different in our hope and our love and our grace, our mercy, our forgiveness, uh, our morality, our actions, the way we treat each other, the way we interact. It's all got to be different because we're not of the world. We are aliens. We are foreigners here on this earth. We are part of an eternal heavenly kingdom, and that's our first place. That's our home. That's our first citizenship. There's what I'm looking for. Our first citizenship is found in heaven. We are dual citizens, though, because we're here. 
We're here, and I, and I firmly believe that if we're here and not there, we're here for a very specific reason. Because here is not awesome. It's not. There, super fun. Here, kind of a bummer. And you wake up every day, and it just seems to get worse and seems to get worse, and there's another thing happening, and there's this happening. And let's not even talk about what's going on out in the world. I think in each one of our families, there's just more and more junk and more and more things, and we, we long for eternity shores where we don't have to deal with any of that anymore. But we're not there. We're here. But then he continues. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And I think that's incredibly important. I think it's incredibly important that Jesus didn't say to his disciples, you're not of the world. They're not going to like you. They're not going to understand you. They're going to question you. You probably will face persecution. But even then, I don't want you to leave. And he's praying to God for his disciples saying, don't, don't take them out of the world. The world needs them. The world needs them. But while they're here, protect them from the evil one because he's going to attack and he's going to be after them and he's going to try and distract them and he's going to try and hurt them and he's going to try and divide them. But even then, don't take them out of the world. Over 20 times in the New Testament, um, either Jesus or Paul or, or some of the writers talk about persecution. Over 20 times in the New Testament, it says that you will face persecution. Even then, don't flee the world. Even when they're arresting you, and even when they're killing you, and even when they're doing these things, and even when they're putting down who you are, don't leave the world. Because it's our ability to be pushed aside and minimized, and in many places persecuted. And it's our ability to stay there and still love that is one of the greatest testimonies that God has done something amazing in our hearts. Because the easiest thing is to run away and hide, which is what the Essenes did. Roman culture is too, too hedonistic, too secular, too worldly, too sinful. I can't be a part of that. I'm going to run away. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Don't be a part of that, but be right next to it. Stay in the world. Matthew 28, we talk about it all the time. Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the world. In Luke 24, he says, repentance and forgiveness shall be proclaimed to all the nations. We can't do that if we remove ourselves from the world. The great commandment and the great commission don't work if you're surrounded by only believers. We've got to be in culture. We've got to, to engage with our world as messy and gross and ugly as it is. Because truth be told, it's not really that much different from when you gather a bunch of church people together. It's still messy and gross, and we have our own issues. Theirs are just more magnified generally, or we like to think they are. But it's really not that different, because you get enough of us together, and we'll say some hurtful things, and we'll do some hurtful things, and we'll have to work on forgiveness and love and grace within our own walls, because we constantly battle against our own flesh. So he continues, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth sanctify them in the truth. And if you're not in the truth of the word of God, it becomes very difficult to engage culture without being sucked in. Your word is truth. He continues, as you, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake, there we go. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Speaking of his uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And then he goes, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is one of the really cool parts about scripture is that in this moment, Jesus is praying for you and I. I don't know why, but that really struck me this week as I was studying this message. Jesus here is praying for you and for me. Because the reason we believe is through the word that the disciples gave. The word that the disciples gave that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to earth and they saw him with their eyes, touched him with their hands, saw him resurrected. That is the word that we have believed through. And so in this moment, Jesus is expanding the prayer. Because that's one of the biggest arguments that I've read from some, his, some theologians is, well, Jesus was really only talking to his 12 disciples when he said, go into the world. I'm like, well, then you're just not reading the rest of the chapter. He expands it here. And it's blatantly obvious. I do not ask for these only. I'm not asking for these things just for these 12. I'm asking for the multitude of believers throughout the rest of time until he comes back that they don't exit the world. That I'm sending all of my believers from that moment until he returns, I'm sending all of them into the world. I'm sending them all of them into the world. That they will be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they may also be in us. Amazing prayer. And then he concludes this section, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now part of that statement is the unity that is found within the church. When we are one with God and he is one with us and we are one with each other, that is part of what will cause people to believe that God sent Jesus to the world. But the other part is the fact that we go into the world. That we exit our safety nets, our safe homes, our safe churches, and we enter into the world. That is what part of what he's saying that they may believe. Because you can't, it's very difficult to believe if no one who already believes is telling you to believe. The majority of people who don't believe don't wake up in the morning and go, I should really check out that Jesus guy. He seems cool. The world doesn't wake up and think about church. The world doesn't wake up and generally think about their soul. It's when we go into the world and we flood the world and we begin to discuss with people and build relationships with people and they recognize, wow, the first thing you think about in the morning is Jesus. Maybe it's not the first thing, but you, you put it in pretty quickly. That you take time every day to interact with your God and he has changed you. Interesting. But if we don't ever interact, if we're the Essenes and we go to Qumran and we just start copying scripture so that we can understand it more, we're not doing anything that Jesus asked us to do. Now, I will say, in your own time, get alone, memorize the word of God, understand it, discuss it together, absolutely, but it cannot, that can't be the total encompassing of what we do in church. Because then we're just building each other up, which a lot of times we need. But I had someone tell me one time that um, they see churches full of what they call pew potatoes. Not couch potatoes, pew potatoes. They get so filled with knowledge and so filled that then they just burst on the person next to them. And we're all just bursting next to each other, getting covered with each other's knowledge. And the world's 
doing what the world does. And how do I know this is important right now? Because it just came out that the Southern Baptist Convention is at its lowest, at its, sorry, its highest rate of loss in 100 years. The largest denomination in the United States had its greatest loss of members over the last year that it's had in 100 years. Just let that sink in for a minute. Andy Stanley, who runs North Point Church in Atlanta, I was at a conference with him, not with him, I didn't like go with him, he was there, I was in the audience, Um, but he was there and he was talking and he was saying that um, a few years back, one of the speakers at the Southern Baptist Convention said, um, Southern Baptists are really only good at evangelizing their children. And everyone was just like, "Uh uh-huh. And it really bothered him because like, "That's, that's awesome, we should evangelize our kids, but what about everyone else's kids? What about the multitude of families that don't believe? And we've talked about it before in Harrisonville. There's 7,500 people that probably don't believe. What about them? What about them? Let's look at Matthew 5. Because Jesus gives us, on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he gives us even more steps and more ideas on how we're supposed to do this. Matthew 5, he's, he's standing on a mountain looking down. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's really clever. And so he's standing on a mountain and he's talking to a bunch of different people. And in this, so he, he, he goes back and forth and it can be kind of confusing sometimes who he's talking to because there'll be times he's talking to the whole crowd and then it's almost like the front row is his disciples and then he moves his focus in on them. And then there's his disciples, but some of his followers, and so he expands to them. And then he goes back to talking to the whole crowd again, and it can be a little challenging sometimes to know exactly who he's talking to. But in this moment, he is talking to his disciples and his followers, people who are following, who are interested, who are beginning to understand. And at this point, let's be honest, no one really believes that Jesus is the Son of God. No one at this point really believes that Jesus is the Messiah. They're interested, they're intrigued, he's done some things, he's amazing, but... We're not ready to believe yet. And so he says in Matthew 5, 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So if we're like the Essenes, and we separate from culture, what we become is a giant pile of salt. That's what we are. We're a giant pile of salt. Now salt is very much like soap only works when it's applied. Soap in a container is useless. Soap applied does what it's supposed to do. Salt in the shaker, salt in a pile doesn't do any good. It's just there. It just exists. And for most of the world, that's the church. For most of the world, the church just exists. It doesn't impact them at all. It doesn't influence what they're doing. It just exists. It is a thing. Just like a pile of salt would be a thing. Now, when you begin to apply that salt to meat, it slows down the decay process. It preserves things. But you have to apply the salt to something. You have to be hands-on. So I love that Jesus first uses the idea of salt in telling people that you've got to be engaged in the world because you can't be engaged. You can't. It's not like you can take the salt and like throw it. And hope it kind of sort of lands on the meat that you're trying to preserve. Now, I'm not, I'm not a salt expert. I'm not a 
I'm not a meat curing expert, but the little bit of research I did is that every single day you have to take the piece of meat and you have to rub and push that salt into it every single day for multiple days. You have to be engaged. You have to be hands-on. You have to be consistent. You can't do it from a distance. And that's how we're supposed to engage with the world. We've got to be consistent. We've got to be present. Now, if you're like me, I am really, really good when I interact with the world at pointing out where they're doing it wrong. Maybe, maybe you're better than me. Maybe you're like much more Christian than I am and understand evangelism much more than I do. But I tend to get so frustrated with a lack of morality sometimes that I just want to attack. Not helpful. Because what I've learned is that people's greatest sin is usually tied to their greatest wound. I'm going to say that again. People's greatest sin is usually connected or tied to their greatest wound. And so if I'm the salt of the earth and I just go and attack their morality, I'm not trying to preserve them. I'm just shoving salt right into that wound. And we looked last week, John 3, 18, that the condemnation that the world has is not because of their actions, it's because of their unbelief. Jesus continues in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Again, what I like to do is take my flashlight and shine it directly in their eyes so that they can see better. Right? You're, you just don't understand. You just need to see better. Let me shine it right in your eyes so then you can see. It's great. That's not what he says. He goes, let it shine before others. That was a moment for me like a Holy Spirit revelation in me that I'm so good at shining my light at them. That's not what Jesus says. Let your light shine before them to light the path back to grace. I'm not supposed to shine a light on their immorality because let's be honest, if you remove Jesus from all of us, I'm, I'm gonna speak frankly, if you move, remove Jesus from all of us, we're just like the world. It's not like many of us in here are just more moral people than everyone else. It's because we've decided to connect with the Holy Spirit and he leads us and he guides us. It's not that we're just better moral people than the world. So you remove Jesus from us and we're just like them, but because we've got Jesus, we live a different way and we're supposed to shine our light before them to walk them towards grace. We spend far too much time interacting with the world by shining light onto their problems and not enough time shining light onto the solution to their problems. The solution to all of it is Jesus. The solution to anything you're dealing with right now is Jesus. The solution to all of my stress and all of my anxiety and all of my fear and all of your worry and all of the stuff that you're dealing with is Jesus. The solution to the immorality of the world and the way the world is going is Jesus. 
He is the light that brings people to salvation, that reconciles them back to their God. But what happens is that we as Christians, we don't always like to be the light. Because some people don't like to follow the path that we're lighting. So we throw a little salt at them, we shine the light, and they don't move, and we go, oh, we'll move on. It didn't work, I tried it. How many conversations, if you're a believer, how many conversations did people have to have with you before you believed? Even if you've grown up in church, how many Sunday schools did you have to go to before it finally clicked? Like, oh, this is it. This is truth. This is how it works. If you're online, how many times have you had to watch services and do different things and be in church before any of you ever believed? But once we believe, we think everyone should just get it immediately. And we forget what it says in Proverbs. I'm going to turn there, Proverbs 4. Because I'm, I've been asking God for forgiveness and I've been repenting this whole week because I'm just, I'm just not great at this. I'm just not great always at having empathy with, with people who are struggling with certain things. I see them, I see people, and you could, I'm sure people can say the same thing about me. You, can, you see that they're making certain decisions, and you see that they're doing certain things, and you can see the outcome of what they're doing. And you just want to shake people sometimes. of Like, just get it. Life is so much better with Jesus. It just is. And you just want to shake people sometimes, but I hope this verse in Proverbs can give us some real empathy. It was a real eye-opener for me. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. That was, that, was a, that was a heart check for me this week. Why am I getting so angry at people who walk in darkness and, and get angry when they fall over and hit their shin on the coffee table? Why do I get so angry at that? Why doesn't that break my heart? It breaks the heart of God. He's not up in heaven like, would you please get it? Come on. You keep hitting your shin on the same coffee table that you've been hitting your shin on for 15 years. Just once. Look up. I'm right here. That's not what he's doing. He's like, oh, they did it again. They fell again. They're hurt again. The person that has made an eye my image that I have put my breath inside, they just keep hurting themselves. They just keep hurting themselves. They just keep hurting themselves. And I think it breaks the heart of God, and my hope this morning is that it can begin to break ours as well. That we don't look at the world with indignation, that we don't look at the world with frustration, but we look at everything that's going on in the world and those who don't believe in Jesus, and we go, they don't get it. They don't see. And we've got the flashlight that allows them to see all the things they're stumbling over. But how many of us are just so mad at the world that we don't, we've stopped caring? We've stopped engaging, we've stopped interacting. Last verse, Luke 1. Luke 1. Luke 1 is amazing, and, and it's, it's got so many different prayers, and it's got so many different uh, hymns and songs that are sung in Luke 1, and this moment, um, a man named Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist, 
who was the person who prepared the way for Jesus. He was the one who was out in the world saying, um, prepare the way of the Lord. He was out in the wilderness and he was telling people the Messiah is coming, the Savior is coming, the answer to all of our problems is coming. The thing that, they, that the Jewish people had been waiting for since Abraham is coming into the world. And this is the end of Zechariah's prophecy, his prayer over his son. And I'm going to read uh, just a few verses, and then we'll put up one verse on the screen. Zechariah is praying over his son after John the Baptist's birth, and he said, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. I think I'm in verse 76. I apologize. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from high. And it says, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah is saying to his son that you're going to prepare the way for the man who's going to do this. You're going to prepare the way for God himself to give light to those who sit in darkness. And if we're going to be Christians, Christians, representatives of Jesus, Small Christs, Christians, that's what it means. It means small Christs, small Jesuses. If we're going to do what Jesus did, one of our biggest roles on earth is not to simply gain more knowledge, not to simply understand more things, but the moment we gain more knowledge about God and his truth, we are to go into the world and shine light into the darkness based on the brand new knowledge that we have. See, this is why in Matthew 28, um, when it says, go into all the world and, and proclaim the gospel and, bapt and uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then it says, and teach them all that I have commanded you to do. Now, what we should really do is take the brand new believers and send them out into the world because for them to teach the world all that they know, it takes like five minutes. Like, you know that moment where you're like, I love Jesus and he loves me, send them out in the world. Because, like, for some of us, if you have to teach everyone all that you know about Scripture, it's going to take a minute or two, okay? It's going to take some time. You guys know a lot about Scripture. You know a lot about living a godly life, and so many of you are going to be much more suited for the discipleship process. But the challenge is, this is where it gets really tricky, the challenge is in most churches, if you look around, we ain't got no new believers, don't and it's not just our church it's every church i talk to because we're not engaging that's why my professors said that generally churches are a lot like the essenes they want to gather around with like-minded people and talk about things they already know instead of stepping out into the world into the darkness Shining light before people. That they may see the good, not the moral. That's not the word good here. It's not moral. It's beautiful. So that they may see the beautiful things that we do. And through that, they will come to know who Jesus is. Because it says that they will come to glorify their Father in heaven. And there's only one way to glorify your Father in heaven. That's to first believe. And our actions are meant to be in the world. Now, that doesn't mean stop coming to church. That's not what I'm saying. That doesn't mean stop having coffee with like-minded people to build your knowledge. That doesn't mean stop studying scripture to understand more and to memorize more and to gain more knowledge and to gain more wisdom. Do that constantly. And then the moment you have more of it, go to the world. 
go to the world. I've got one story, one analogy to close with today. This is my actual closing. A lot of times I say in closing, and then I have like four closings. This is actually my closing, I promise. So when I was growing up, I was, um, both my parents worked all the time, and so from a pretty young age, I was home alone in the summer. Now, I'm an only child, which means I'm spoiled ridiculously, and um, I was not asked to do many things at home. But in the summer, my mom would always ask me to do one chore, just one a day. Many of you are like, oh my gosh, I got like 46 chores every day. I know. Your parents don't love you as much as mine did. Um, I had one chore. Now, my mom got home about 4.30 every day. Do you know what I did every day until about 4.25? Not my chore. Didn't even think about it. 4.25 rolls around, frantically unloading the dishwasher. Because mom's coming home at 4.30. And it hit me this week. If we look at the world and we believe that Jesus is coming back soon, if we believe that, Why are we not frantically running around doing the one chore that God has given us to do? Why are we not panicked that mom is going to whoop our you-know-whats if we do not get this chore done? But the creator of heaven and earth has asked us to do one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love everyone else the same way. And in that, you will make disciples and you will bring people to Jesus because there will be a day when he comes and no one else is getting saved. It's done. Mom is home. The chore should have been done. And it hit me, and I've repented. I've been on my knees weeping in repentance that I am so, more, so much more concerned with being right sometimes than I am about doing the one thing that God has commanded me to do if I actually believe he's coming home in about five minutes. We should be frantically rushing around, preaching the word of God, living a life that is an example, that draws people in, that, to use Pastor Mark's term, winsome, that you want to engage people. We have to be salt. We have to be applied. We have to be light. We have to be those things, because if not, no one else is believing, and if God comes back, we're going to know, I missed it. I missed that opportunity, and that person is going to hell. We don't like talking about that. And I'm not here to shame you and I'm not here to guilt you. That Jesus will motivate you however he's going to motivate you. My job is to tell you the truth. And the truth is that if we're not out in the world, engaging the world, I'll take, I've been talking with uh, Pastor Jerry Bush, who is the former youth pastor here. He's a uh, pastor in a church here in Harrisonville. He's my mentor during this uh, seminary process. And he told his, his congregation, if we understand heaven and hell, And we've got a whole world of people that don't believe. And we're not engaging with them. But we're essentially saying, as far as I'm concerned, you can go to hell. And he told me that, and it's just like, it it was gut-wrenching. Because I am in the same boat, okay? I am not immune from this. I am probably the worst at this. This is why I'm teaching this. Because once I teach it, I cannot be that hypocritical to not do it. Okay? I have a certain level of, of hypocrisy that I'm okay with. That level's too much. Because I've got to be better. We have got to be better at engaging the culture to believe in Jesus. Not shining light on their sin, not rubbing salt in their wounds, but loving them unconditionally that they may see the heart of God through your life.
because there will be a day coming where it doesn't matter anymore. Our parents will be home. There will be no more chores to do. And we will rejoice in that day. But how many of you know many people that that will be the worst day that could ever happen? Let's change that. Let's change that. Let's engage with the world. Let's engage with the world and make people understand who God really is. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are so, so good. God, forgive us. Forgive us when we're not good at it, when we, we just, we get absorbed with ourselves. we get absorbed with church, we get absorbed with all the ins and the outs and the programs and the do's and don'ts and the cans and can'ts and we get so focused inward that we forget that there's a whole world of people who are dying in their sin with no hope. God, break our hearts for the world. May we not be like the Essenes who just remove ourselves from culture, to remove ourselves from society. May we step in. And God, as, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, may we, um, uh, sorry, John 17, may we, may we sanctify ourselves in the truth. May we, may we understand the truth and, and, and be able to apply it so that we are not overrun by the evil one and we're not tempted by the evil one, that we can go into the culture and be, and be impactful but not impacted. Because God, I think that's what we're, all of us are so scared of is that, man, if I go into the world, I'm just gonna be like them and I'm gonna act like them. And, and God, I don't think that's true. Because God, you told us that the very power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. Let us have faith in that. Let us have faith that we can interact with the world and engage with the world and come out unscathed. That we can come out actually closer to you because you're close to the brokenhearted. You're close to the oppressed. You're close to those that are hurting. And so I think we should be too. And God, we'll meet you there and we'll interact with you and we'll probably become closer to you. But God, I pray for each and every one of us that we take time today to examine our hearts, to examine our understanding, to examine um, have we separated from the world? Have we become monks in a monastery who are just surrounded by people who think like us? Or do we have friends? Do we have associates? Do we have people that we know that are not like us? God, help us to extend our circles. Help us to love more people. Help us to love you better. Help us to love everyone else better. God, we love you. We love you so much. Help us to love better. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.